Welcome to Good Revenue, where we discuss monetization, go-to-market, and revenue growth. I'm your host, Nitha Bidway. We're here to discuss what we can do to influence more effectively, improve profitability, and sustainably grow revenue while delivering more value to customers over time. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Good Revenue. Today, we're joined by Cassie Young. She is a general partner at Primary Ventures, which is a seed stage firm in New York City. One of the things I love about Cassie is her focus on the customer. So we talk about why customer centricity is really about driving outcomes customers care about, why retention is your cheapest form of growth, and why the best companies are all about alignment. I hope you enjoy. We're here today with Cassie Young. She is a longtime operator, most recently served as the chief commercial officer and then the chief customer officer before joining Primary Ventures. Welcome, Cassie. Thank you for having me. We're so glad to have you. Um, I love your background, uh, being both an operator and on the investment side. So I'm really interested to hear your perspective. Well, I appreciate you having me. And yes, I like to say I'm an accidental VC, longtime operator, um, but I actually think there are many parallels between the two. And I'm excited to talk more about those today. I love it. I think that profile is very much needed and it's so helpful on both the investment side. And then if you ever return to being an operator, I think, again, your investment background, I think will be quite helpful too. I would I would hazard a guess. For sure. You've had a really interesting trajectory. Maybe tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today and what has been most surprising in that journey. Absolutely. So um, I worked in tech media and telecom uh, at City, and I loved reading about the businesses that we were supporting and just to walk us back in time. And this was a year when MySpace was getting acquired. So tech looked quite a bit different than it does today. But I really didn't like the monotony of being a financial analyst. And so I left City in 2006 to join my first ever startup company here in New York, which was a business called TheLadders.com. It's still around today, but it looked quite a bit different at that time. So it was a job search website, then focused on jobs that paid uh, $100,000 a year or more. So probably 200000 or more kind of course corrected for today's environment. And it was a subscription business that was just a direct response marketing shop that really was just doing growth hacking and performance marketing before people called it that, right? It was just a direct response then. The reason this comes full circle to primary is going to join a startup in New York in 2006. Everyone told me that I had lost my right mind, right? Right. If you're going to work at a startup, at least move to the Bay Area, right? And I like to joke that for the three years that followed joining, I kind of thought they might be right. right? <laughs> and so the ladders ended up being an amazing journey, um, kind of right place, right time. I joined, there were just under 40 employees. It grew to close to 400 employees during my time there, really, really significant revenue growth in an era where, you know, the business had just raised the Series A when I joined and we never raised another dollar of venture capital during my time there, right? Which is a very different type of growth that will come full circle, right? You know, some of the stuff we'll talk about in, in today's climate. But I, I left there in 2009 to go to business school. And when I left, I said to myself, okay, I, I'm never going to live in New York again because after business school, subscribing to what I thought, you know, may have been right about what people said, I thought I would move to the Bay Area. And something wild happened in New York during that time period where, you know, the global financial crisis occurred. And in primary, we like to talk about that being the single greatest tailwind that ever happened to New York tech, right? 
And so I actually ended up right back uh, in New York in 2011, continued my startup journey. I did another two marketplace businesses, a company called Savored, uh, which ultimately was acquired by Groupon, and then a bigger company, GLG, the expert research company that many people are familiar with. And then as you mentioned earlier, the the journey for me immediately prior to joining Primary was nearly a seven-year run when all was said and done in the more classical SaaS world. So I was with a business called Sail Through um, Software for Marketing Technology. So we sold email and personalization software into e-commerce, retail, and publishers. I joined there just as the business had closed its Series B, um, held a number of roles there, and was ultimately what we called the chief commercial officer, but functionally was the chief revenue officer up until the business sold in late 2018. So we sold that business to a, a roll-up of other marketing technology brands that was wholly owned by Insight Partners. And with that transaction, I moved into an executive role in the very exciting world of private equity roll-ups. I took the chief customer officer job of, across a portfolio of seven different marketing technology brands that ran the gamut from what Salesforce did, which was more mid-market to enterprise software. So when I left, our average contract values were probably about $200,000 all the way down to more self-service, more classically PLG businesses like Campaign Monitor is probably the brand that people are are most familiar with. And so um, what brought me to Primary, you know, the road is really long. So I like to say, you know, Primary is eight and a half years old, but that I have a 13 and a half year history with the firm. And the way that math checks out is when I was in business school, I was working on one of the companies I mentioned before called Savered. And one of the co-founders of Primary was at another fund at that time. He led our Series A. He was on our board. He was an amazingly value-added board member. We kept up personally and professionally over the years. And he was always in my ear about venture. But I kept saying, I'll never go to that side of the table. I'm an operator through and through. Right. And I think at the end of the day, people go to work with people. And along yeah. the way, you know, I met his co-founder, Ben Sun, here. And after many years of, of dancing around it, finally took the leap in, in 2020. And so, you know, as I said to you before, it's a very long and windy road. But I don't think I would have been equipped for, qualified for, or effective in the role today without that operating journey and different types of businesses and different stages of businesses along the way. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. And did you have any hesitation or like what was your thought process about going from kind of later stage scaling businesses into seed? Or were you excited because it was such a different challenge? Both. So I'll tell you, I was really nervous about making a leap, right? The earliest stage business I had operated in previously was Series A, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember sharing with Brad and Ben, our co-founders, these nerves about coming over. And they said, don't worry about it. I do think 12 or so months in, Brad said to me, oh yeah, we were really nervous about it too. We didn't know (laughs) if you would actually be able to calm down, right, to the early stage companies. And it was kind of interesting because When I started socializing with my network that I was coming to primary, I received a lot of pushback from really trusted advisors in my network who, without naming names, like one of them said to me, your talents are going to be wasted on early stage companies, which I a very jarring statement to. Yeah, it's a big statement, right? But yeah, it definitely, it, it, it was frightening. Here's what I'll tell you. The playbook for building a company is the playbook for building a company regardless of the stage in which you're operating, right? So knowing we're going to talk quite a bit about, you know, sales later today, I always say pipeline coverage is pipeline coverage, whether you're a seed stage company or a series D company, right? Right. Um, 
I think the adjustment has been sort of the resourcing and the order of operations and just the deliberate nature of some of the prioritization decisions that must happen in very early stage. That was an adjustment, but it's been a tremendous amount of fun. But the headline answer to your question is, I was both excited and nervous about it. And I'll share with you very openly because I shared it very openly, you know, with our with our founders and my partners at Primary. When I came to work here, I was unsure if venture would be the long-term path for me, right? And now I, I do believe it's a long-term path for me, but more specifically, I think that primary is a long-term path for me, not necessarily venture capital at large. And we can talk more about that later. But what, one of the things that was floating around in my head when I accepted this job was, what's the world of possibilities of things that I may want to do next? And my number one career piece of career advice to anyone, regardless of their seniority, function, industry, is play two moves ahead, right? So think of the universe of things that you might want to be doing five to 10 years from now, and does the very next opportunity shore you up for all of those things? And you hinted at this before, but venture, check those boxes, right? Because I thought to myself, even if I don't like it and I want to go back to operating, now I've seen a volume of fundraises that would be unparalleled to what I would see in an operating role. I have pattern recognition of these different businesses. But one thought in my head was, okay, I've now been in a few different startups. Would I think about being a founder? And I joke that I love working with founders so much. I mean, it brings so much energy and joy to my life. But within about 10 weeks of joining Primary, I said, that ship has sailed. I don't think I can do it anymore. So it's that these were, you know, kind of some of the, and I know you had asked about some of the surprising things along the way. That That's not like an along the way thing. That's a surprise to coming here, but more generally along the way. What I would say to you has surprised me most is how all jobs ultimately converge the more senior you become. Yeah. Right. So I at like the more senior you become, above all else, you are a really effective general manager and people manager to be successful. And you might have a different functional lane reporting to you, but all jobs converge, right? And it's, it's yeah. been such a fascinating realization for most acutely over the past decade or so. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I also think there's something to to having diverse and unexpected experiences that pay off for you later in That's your right. life. You know, there's all sorts of things as I'm entering my, you know, 20 something years now at professional capacity that you're just like, oh, yeah, that like random thing actually was quite useful. Who knew? That's right. <laughs> That's right. And I always another you know piece of advice I always give people is to trust the process. Right. Yeah. I always look back at when I was 24, 25 and really frustrated with business decisions that were made. And now that, you know, I'm on a different, you know, part of the team and kind of see things from that 20,000 foot view, I want to go back and sort of kick the butt, you know what I mean, of the 25 year old who thought that way. But yeah, I mean, I think to that point, everything happens for a reason too, right? And I like to say that I think most people have the one job that really didn't go to plan in some way. And for me, that was GLG, right? I spent just over a year there we were on the fun journey of what I'll call intrapreneurship, which is, yeah. you know, its whole own bag of tricks. And we decided to kind of move the business in a different direction than, you know, we expected when I was hired to go and do that job. And I look back on it and it, it on the one hand, it sort of pains me to have a one year stint somewhere. On the other hand, some of the relationships I built at GLG are some of my closest professional friends to date. And the mafia of people from there have gone on to do really tremendous things. And so, you know, for a while I had this discomfort with it. And now I look back and say, I'm 
really grateful that I was there because I have this, you know, nodal access to a network that I wouldn't have had, right, if that hadn't happened. So to your point, is that you just never know what's around the corner. Yeah, there's, I mean, you're really rewarded for the openness or sometimes even maybe a, you know, a, a, a bad choice or you made the best choice at the time, but, you know, everything looks different in hindsight. I agree. That's right. That's right. You know, I'm curious. So at primary, I mean, while I know that you have a more limited number of investments that primary makes in a year, you do yeah. see a lot of breadth in terms of opportunities. So are there um, a couple investments that you're particularly proud of so far? It's a great question. So I'm probably going to answer that in two parts. So just to put a little bit more color on what you just described. Yes. So we have a very concentrated portfolio, meaning we only do 12 to 14 new investments per year. So eight plus years into this journey, we have about 80 active portfolio companies today. We love all of them, right? But I should say we're not we're not asking to choose among your children. No favorites in the family. No favorites. I got it. And so so I'm gonna answer your question in in a couple of different parts. So one is at the firm level. And then second is for me personally, right? Um, kind of how we've seen that play out. So at the firm level, I would say it's really rewarding to see businesses that are tackling really important problems, right? So about 25% of primary's portfolio actually sits in the healthcare lane. And I think that's really exciting, right? Because we see businesses like we have a portfolio company called Perry Health that's building a remote patient care clinic they started with diabetes, right, as the first condition they're going after. And they're helping all of these people in crazy care deserts, right, which is really just fantastic to see. Another business that fits that hold is a is a business called Marker Learning. We did the seed round in that one. Andreessen came on and, and led the Series A not too long thereafter. That's a business that is building a proprietary diagnostic for learning disabilities, starting with dyslexia. Most school districts are buried in a backlog of students that need evaluations and Marker is helping them to accelerate that. That's a massive market. Do you know what I mean? In terms of doing well for the world. Right. My particular focus at primary is not healthcare. So I am a down the lane B2B software investor, application layer uh, software. There's a few things that I like to talk about there. One is, you know, I mentioned that we sold my last company sales route to a roll up. I learned a lot about the world of roll-ups and there were things that I thought went well about them, things that went less well about them. And so uh, coming up on two years ago, we actually incubated a roll-up business here at Primary called Relay Commerce and then found two amazing co-founders to go and run the business. I'm involved in a board capacity. It's called Relay Commerce. That's a fun one for me because it just allowed me to use this sort of past learning experience to go about it. Similarly, we invested in a company called Lantern about a year ago that's building a customer data platform for B2B software businesses. And the early use cases for that data are helping customer success and sales teams to grow net revenue retention. That's huge right now. <laughs> it's very, there's a hot, big why now on yeah. that business. Yeah. But in a past life, I had, you know, evaluated, hired, and fired every combination of Gainsight, the Tango, you name it. And so, when I met this founder, I was like, there surely there's a different way to go about it. And that was exciting. And then probably just referring to the most recent deal I've done at Primary, very different, is a company called Lyric that's building enterprise AI for supply chain, right? So for decision science for supply chain. I love to talk about this business because everyone's like, supply chain, like, is that that exciting? But we're all consumers of supply chain. Oh, and yeah. During the pandemic, we saw the crazy shocks 
right to that business. Yep. And so investing in a company that is enabling, you know what I mean, these Fortune 1000 brands to do better for all of us as the end consumers of those products is pretty exciting as well. So we've got a little bit of everything. Those are just maybe just a, a handful of quick highlights, but I could probably spend 90 minutes just talking about you know, some of the other ones as well. I would say there's something about the businesses that look really boring that are actually the most exciting behind the scenes. I think there's so much truth to that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. That's uh, that's awesome. I love the breadth of that portfolio. And one of the things I really like about you and your just your energy for customers and the customer mission. And I know you really see that as a North Star for a business, which I love because I feel that way too. I often Sometimes I feel a little confused when it seems like businesses discount kind of what the customer needs because you just assume there's going to be a negative cost to that at some point. So right. I'm just curious, like, how do you think about that? And, and why does Primary's approach to kind of prioritizing customers in the business and the business model work so well, do you think? Well, at the most macro level, what I like to say is that if you do everything in your power to make your customers wildly successful with your product you'd have to catastrophically screw something up not to succeed as a business. Now, of course, there are constraints to that statement, right? Like operating within your financial means, right, et cetera. And then that's sort of the MO I brought to the table as an operator. And I do think the very same thinking applies to primary, right? If we do everything in our power to enable our portfolio companies, and what's really important about that is I'm not talking about happy customers by way of that promoter score or satisfaction. I'm talking about driving real outcomes and performance on what you promise to those customers. You will succeed, right? If you are focused on those outcomes over mere activities, right? So that that's kind of the general philosophical framework that I like to think about. But the second is just the brass tacks. And this is less about primary and more about operating companies that retention is your cheapest form of growth. Right. right. So everyone's seen some version of like the Bain statistic that retention is six times more cost effective than acquisition. I like to put it in really simple terms, because since I spend a lot of my waking hours thinking about software, you know, a software business that has 125% net retention could never sell another new logo again and grow 25% year over year. That's pretty incredible. Right. 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 That's the power of the model. <laughs> That's right. right. There. That's right. And so, you know, I think businesses need to be rabid about it. We are very, very consumed with it. And particularly in the earliest stages of company building, you must have that early set of customers who are just obsessed with the problem statement that you're trying to go off of. And so I think a lot of people fail to prioritize customer success in the earliest days of company building. And I, I, I mean, it's important at every single step in the journey no one will ever tell the story of the business better than the customers themselves. But truly, you know, when you're out raising even a seed round, you could have only five design and development partners. We're going to get on the phone with those D&D partners, right? And really understand what you're trying to solve for them. And so this, the customers are really just the centerpiece of everything that gets built and scaled in a business. How do you work with portfolio companies in terms of building that capacity? It's a great question. So the first thing is actually, even though we're talking a lot about customer success, it's really a sales opportunity, yeah. right? Because one of the earliest exercises we'll sort of go through with portfolio companies is really making sure that they have a tight understanding of their ideal customer profile, right? Their ICP. Because 
more often than not, a customer success problem isn't actually a structural customer success problem. It's you have the wrong type of customer, right? That's, you know, using the product in the first place. Or no segmentation at all, (laughs) potentially, right? right, And, And part and parcel with that is, being relentless about your qualification right. early and saying no, right. right? And it's, this is really hard and do not mishear me. Like a customer is a customer in the early days of building. And there's actually merit to having some diversity in your early customer set because it accelerates your learning, right? Of right. which problem statements resonate with different personas. But I do think you really have to be maniacal, right, about making sure you're finding the right type of customers in the first place. I think the next place we try to help them is customer success is everybody's job. And that starts with the very top. So really imploring, and hopefully we're actually not imploring, hopefully we're backing founders where it is their natural DNA to be out in the field with customers all of the time. The best CEOs and the best senior executives I've seen in every function, they're with customers every waking day, whether they are a CTO, a CPO, a CRO, a CEO, whatever it may be, to help you know learn the business and set a model example um, for the rest of the staff. And maybe just the final point I'll make of this is, is I think really great founders bring the customer into the centerfold of what they do. So they'll bring them to all hands, right? They'll have them do fireside chats with the engineering team and product teams around what they like. So we just try to borrow from our own best practices as operators and pay that forward with the portfolio companies. But I would say the best founders that we support don't need primaries guidance with this. We can give them some tips and tricks on what to do structurally, but they have this inherent fire in the belly that just always kind of puts the customer at the center of everything that they do. I think that's great if you're oriented that way. And at the same time, I I hope that it's a capacity that is teachable too. I do think it is. I do think it is. Yeah, I think it is. And I think that I can remember one of our portfolio companies last year did their first ever sort of mini customer advisory board. And we had worked with them a little bit. I sat in many customer advisory board meetings over the year with some opinions on how to structure those to get the most out of them. And so we had offered some coaching into how to structure that day and really get momentum out of it. And listening to this founder give me the replay of this afternoon they hosted, he was just over the moon, right? And so this was someone who maybe didn't have a super rich operating background, right? In the world of tech, had not done something like this previously. And so that's a place where, you know, we we can offer some experience and they can learn. And I think, you know, I'm going a little bit off track here, but that point about learned behaviors, I think is a more important, broader one to founders, right? Where, you know, I always say there's three different archetypes of founders that primary will back. One is the serial entrepreneur who academically is always going to be the most de-risked person, right? To put a bet on. Number two is the first time founder, but who's a really experienced operator, meaning they've raised money before, they've been accountable to a board, they're a real grown-up executive. And third is the first time founder who hasn't done either of those things, which is the riskiest category, but it's also the highest beta category, meaning that some of our most notable fund returning companies come from that bucket. So everyone always says to me, well, how do you sniff out like the ability to de-risk that third bucket? And my answer to that is it's that the founder is a learning machine, right? And we can pick that up during the diligence process. So customer success would be one example of that. But we're looking for that cognitive elasticity more more broadly. I love that. I think that's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. 
On the flip side of the coin, you're also in a seat in which you're seeing when things go wrong. And so I'm just curious to know, like, what are some of the common pitfalls that you're coming across in go to market? Yeah, it's a great question. So I love that you put a filter criteria on that of go to market. It says like, I have a hundred. I know. Well, hell, so, you can go broader if you want. That's fine. <laughs> let's let's start with go to market. And then maybe I'll, I think some of the go to market challenges are actually representative of, of broader challenges, right? So I think I philosophically agree with you on that, by the way, just to say. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So number one thing I, I hit on previously, but I'll, I'll double click on it and then we'll, we'll tick through just a handful of others is this concept of qualification. So I joke that it can be very easy for a founder to have what I'll call happy ear syndrome, where they meet with a potential early customer, they say nice things about the product, they seem excited, and the founder thinks there is a legitimate sales opportunity there, and fundamentally there's not. And this is particularly true when it comes to enterprise selling, right? And so a lot of the work that we try to offer founders and the support we offer them is, you know, you're classically trained in the commercial world, you get it, like, there are tried and true frameworks for mapping every opportunity and checklists of questions that you need to be asking, such as, does this person actually have authority to sign a contract in the organization, right? Because if they don't, that's okay, but your efforts need to be focused on how you get to that person, right? Versus the other 30-minute meeting of regurgitation, right, with that particular person that you had, who may be your champion, but is never going to get a deal done, right? So we spend a lot of time talking about qualification, discovery. Our team listens to hundreds of sales calls, probably thousands of sales calls a year to help uh, listen to recordings and provide coaching around how to get sharper with questions and things along those lines. Similar to that, there's a broader sales process question, right, around, you know, how do you really prove the ROI and business case of what you're selling. So I would say, you know, qualification and discovery, number one. Number two is this concept of pipeline coverage, where are you building what I call the plan to hit plan to make sure you can hit your targets regardless of the stage you're at? And so what I mean by that is if you need to sign 10 customers in Q1, and you think that, you know, of all the really qualified opportunities you have, you can get a quarter of them closed, 25%. Well, that means you need 10 times four, right? The inverse of that, 40 really qualified opportunities to be able to get to your pet. Well, if you need 40 really qualified opportunities, what's the number even above that, right, that you need to be achieving by way of conversations, et cetera, this is not a late stage sales targets problem. This is a problem for everybody, right? So pipelines number two. And then just the third thing I'll mention quickly, and this definitely applies more broadly in the business, is the order of operations when it comes to hiring. I will talk to seed stage businesses sometimes that are like, I need a chief revenue officer. And I'll say, you, you do not need a chief revenue officer. What you need is actually a function of pipeline coverage, right? If you are able to drum up so many opportunities that the founder is like, I, I'm working with the founder right now who's up to three o'clock in the morning reading 10Ks to prepare for enterprise sales meetings because he has no capacity. He needs to hire right. account executives, right? Or people at closing capacity. If you can't build pipeline, I would say you want to be hiring something like a BDR, right? To come in and build pipeline until you're drowning, right? And then you're going to hire that capacity. In either of those worlds, you do not need a head of sales, right? And most great heads of sales will want some data to respond to, et cetera, before they come on. 
And I say this applies more generally because you don't want senior bloat in really early stage teams, right? There's other ways to go about that through advisors and things like that early on. But there's a lot of really hands-on keyboard work. And while it's amazing to have an experienced team, like your burn is really important early on. And so I, I picked on sales since we were talking about go-to-market, but I do think there are, are lessons to be considered more broadly there. Yeah. And it's so interesting, like just clicking into that. I mean, I think pipeline coverage is something that we don't talk about enough, probably across stages. A hundred percent. But you have a background in marketing as well. And, and that is one area where I'm I'm just, in my professional experience, it feels like we waste a lot of marketing efforts on things that do not move the needle for the business. And it drives me insane. I'm constantly, constantly talking about it here. I'm sure you see this too. Can you give us any kind of, give us like your sense of what um, what is going on there? What do you advise earlier stage companies in terms of doing the work in marketing to build pipeline, not just, you know, leads. Yeah. So it's a great question. So the, the first thing I'm going to say is I'm going to contradict your question a little bit, and then I promise I'll answer it. Sure. No, go crazy. That's fine. <laughs> what I what I frequently joke with people is at the board level, no one cares if your pipeline came from sales or marketing. We just care. 100%. No, that's not even a contradiction. I agree. Yeah. But yeah, the yeah. reason why I think that's important to this conversation is many really talented leaders don't internalize that. Yeah. So you show up at this board meeting where it's like, well, sales crush it, but marketing did not. And my answer is, well, then you did not crush it because right. if there's there's no such thing as that. There's one business, there's one plant. Now, to your point, there is definitely this concept slash risk slash pitfall of optimizing toward a local maximum, right? Where it's like, okay, we're running an A-B test on our landing page and we got conversion to move from 10 to 15%. And everyone's like, oh, that's amazing because we had a 50% increase in conversion. But they didn't stop to say, that's actually not the problem. The problem is we're totally slow on top of funnel pipeline opportunity. So one thing we like to encourage companies to do is to really do a step-by-step pipeline audit to understand where is the transformational opportunity in the business, right? If everything's going well down funnel, it's not about optimizing to that point, right? Or sometimes we'll say like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? It's about finding where you have the biggest opportunity for the biggest swing and going after that. And I think it's easy to get stuck on the smaller stuff because you can see the results much more quickly. And so there's this kind of energy and gravitational pull toward that because there's a feedback loop right on your results of how you see that coming in where really figuring out the bigger unlocks for the business could just take more time, right? And they could take more patience. And we even talked about that at primary, right? Of how do we know a strategy that we're employing as a firm is paying off? And the answer is like, we may not know for a while, but you you have to not be afraid to try new things and shut things down and revisit the results, right? So I think marketing is a great example of this. And I'll go way back to you know my early days at the ladders. I said we were a direct response marketing shop. We did a lot of experimentation with direct mail, right? So snail mail, for people not familiar with that term. To the naked eye, that channel looked really bad, really bad up front because it's expensive, right? The printing is expensive. The postage is expensive. So we ran some experiments there that we ended up shutting down, but we had a pretty good culture of revisiting our results and it was a subscription business. So we would look at long-term likelihood to upgrade from free to paid. And when we went back and we visited the results of direct mail six to nine months later, it was a ridiculously high-performing channel for us. And we said, okay, we have to go turn that back on 
but we have to balance. Like I always say marketing is this all little hedge fund of like cost effective channels and scalable channels. And so it's okay to invest in some of the stuff that may take longer to pay off, but you have to supplement it with things that can pay off more in the near term. And that's where this actually comes completely full circle, the pipeline coverage and cohort analysis of understanding what you can expect today, where you have to close the gaps. But I think if I had to stop my long-winded rant and think about it at a high level, it comes back to having an integrated business plan and really understanding how each one of the functional lanes and each one of like the campaign lanes in those functional areas ties back into this, you know, more macro level business objective. I completely agree with you. And I had to laugh because I've had similar experiences with direct mail. People think it's so unsexy and in the right business with the right content in that piece, it can be amazing, but it is additive. It also doesn't work just by itself. Like it needs to be part of wider activities. But you know, you're alluding to something that I think is also very salient. And that is the, the challenge of alignment between particularly marketing and sales, but I also think customer success. Often it feels like those teams, maybe even product, are really siloed into their own KPIs and metrics and less attuned to the overall business. And I'm curious because you've previously served as kind of the the revenue or the commercial officer. Do you think one of the potential solutions to that challenge is having a more centralized executive reporting line or like, oh, what else do you think companies could do to kind of fix that alignment or that fix that misalignment problem? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So there's a couple of things that come to mind. One, certainly having more centralized executives is a stop gap solution. But I actually think there are more structural solutions to going about that as well. Number one is through the culture of the company, right? And you get everybody sort of thinking that way. And there are hacks to help you with that. So I'll give you an example. When I was running the sales and customer success teams at SailThrough, we had a monthly commercial all hands, right, for our for our sales organization. So sellers, solutions, engineerings, SDRs, et cetera. And at each one of the monthly meetings, I would invite an individual contributing customer success manager to come in and tell us a story for 10 minutes about a customer and how they were using the product. And that anecdote was so much more powerful than a product marketing artifact or, you know, some case study. It was really the context of exactly what we had done, et cetera. And that really empowered, right, the sales team to understand. Similarly, we would share data back with the sales team around what we were learning, right? So I can actually remember this very specific story where we had cut net retention rates by ACV band of our customers. And it turned out that customers, that we just weren't a great solution for smaller brands. The product was a little bit harder to use. The price point was typically a proxy for the size of the customer and the resources they had available. And the net retention curve of customers that paid us $50,000 a year or less was atrocious. And we shared it with the sales team. I didn't really think anything of it. And a, a couple months later, one of the AEs on our team came to me and she said, oh, this business at, in LA is really interested in coming over. It's a former customer, but I remember that data you showed us. I don't know that we, you know, I'm like, yes, mission accomplished, right? She saw that and she's thinking about that because she knows one unhappy customer is going to be louder than 15 champions in the market. Squeaky wheels are detrimental, right, on the customer side. So getting people to think that way, I think, is really important. But the final thing I would say is this really comes down to the dynamics of the executive team, which starts with how the CEO runs the business, but it's also the organic responsibility of any executive on the team. So this is not my thinking. This is borrowed thinking from many of the great management authors out there. I tend to recite a lot of Patrick Lencioni, who wrote 
identify the functions of a team and the advantage. And Patrick Lencioni has this concept of the first team, which basically means the more senior you become, your first team is the most senior team you sit on, not the direct line of direct reports that report into you. And this, this is the number one reason, in my opinion, why people fail to thrive in very executive functions is that they're always protecting their team, which would be sales or customer success versus the business. And I, to put, bring this to life a little bit, I tell people this story. I was on vacation last summer. I missed a call from a founder. So I texted him. I said, hey, I'm on vacation. Is it urgent? He said, oh, no, no, it's not urgent if you're on vacation. We're just changing all of the sales quota. So I want to talk to you about messaging. I'm like, okay, that seems important. Seems <laughs> important. And when I got on the phone, what had happened was this was a business that relied heavily on marketing to drive inbound pipeline. And they were experiencing seasonality in the business. And the reps were annoyed because they didn't have pipeline coming from marketing. And the sales leader thought the answer to that was to go and change the quotas. A first team sales leader would have said, okay, marketing's experiencing seasonality. What spin or incentive can I offer my team to go close that gap? And so I think the number one way to drive alignment in an organization is to ensure that the executive team is operating in a first team mentality. And at the end of the day, that's the CEO's job. And if they're not fostering you know, that type of thinking, I think the business will struggle. I think you're also speaking to something that's really important, which is there is more going on than just what you or I are working on, right? And so having that awareness is huge. Yeah. I have a colleague here at Primary who has this great soundbite that I've now borrowed where she talks a lot about the importance of senior leaders working on the business, not just in the business. Yep, agreed. It's another way of thinking about first team dynamics. And I, and I, but I think people get it when they hear that is they get so focused on making their direct reports successful and hitting their one very specific number. That's your point. There's all of these other things that have to happen for the business to be successful. And if you can't be the participant in that dialogue, you know, the, the road is, is going to be limited for you. Yeah. And I think those metrics really matter too, to your point, right? Is that you, you've got to make sure you've got the right ones and that they are encouraging teams to look at the end game for the business, not right. just, I, you know, I crush leads or whatever. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So just switching gears a little bit, obviously the market conditions have been uh, not ideal, I think, for a lot of folks last 18 months or so, maybe a little bit longer. And a lot of companies, particularly the investment-backed community, are, are in pain. What's your take on this? I mean, you know, this is obviously a really big question, but you know, what what do you think companies could focus on in the challenging environment that we're in, which frankly looks like it's going to extend for a bit? Yeah, I do think it's going to extend for a bit. My partner, Brad, had a great line at Primary's New York City Summit back in September where he said, we're kind of in this burning man environment where everyone's like stuck in the mud, right? Trying to figure how to, how to get out of it. Oh, so that was a good line. But yep. uh, there's a little bit of nuance to this question by company stage. Sure. Okay? So when we think about, let's start later stage and then work our way back earlier. When we think about later stage companies, the name of the game has been, how do you sort of become master of your own destiny a little bit, right? And the way you see companies operationalizing that guidance is by focusing on getting profitable. And so I'd like to joke, you know, in my sail through journey, there was a point at which our growth slowed sometime around 2016, 17. And our board said to us, you should really focus on rule of 40 optimization. And everyone ran back to their computer and had to Google what rule of 40 was. Now it, And now it's the top of the town. And for people who haven't heard that metric before, it's basically a growth versus profitability trade-off score, mostly used in software businesses, where you want the sum of your year-over-year growth rate and then your 
to, to be debated EBITDA margin or free cash flow margin. People use different metrics to be greater than 40 and the higher above 40, the richer the valuation you command, right? And so you can now, you know, there's websites that index rule 40 for public companies, et cetera. If companies' growth was slowing over the last few years, the only way they could get to that rule of 40 optimization, right, was to grow profit, right? So you think about that, you're growing 100% year over year, you could be losing minus 60% in your EBITDA margin, 100 plus minus 60 is still 40, right? You're growing 10% year over year, you have a different sort of situation to manage. So I do think, you know, with later stage companies, they did not want to take dilution for the sake of taking dilution. Quite frankly, people raised at these monster multiples, you know, in the peak boom times of 21, they haven't grown into those, right? So there's right. a host of different reasons why they weren't thinking about that. So you did see people getting a little bit more creative with like venture debt, right? Has has been a had its moment um, the last few years. But more commonly, you see people going about it in terms of trying to get more profitable. And in every single business, the number one consumer of burn is people, right? And that's where you see these rifts taking place, et cetera, right? And I think there's a little bit in recent weeks, at least I'm personally feeling like you're hearing about more and more of these. I think it's because there was this thinking in September when you saw Instacart, Clavio hit the public markets that maybe we were going to be ready to resume then. We're not right there yet, right? And so now, you know, people are coming into 2024 planning, thinking more deliberately about that. In the earlier stages, I'll say two things. So one is, you know, if you're a series A company, no one's going to expect you to be profitable, right? However, one change has been that proving a path to profitability or a strong command that you have underlying strong business economics is more important than ever before. So I can think about a series A fundraise that a portfolio company went through where the shot heard around the world for investors was a proposed margin walk where they showed where gross margin was today, where they thought it could get in the next 24 months. But then each part of the waterfall was exactly what they were going to do to help them achieve that gross margin gain. And the name of the game for the investor was getting a conviction that they could actually do it right in each one of those areas. In 2021, that would not have been at a Series A raising deck, right? right so right. there's this concept that you have to prove it earlier than ever before. Final point I'll make on this, though, is since our first check-in is typically at seed, we're not going to tell people to preserve cash at all costs at seed because they'll lose first mover advantage if they go and do that, right? We can't, we can't do that. So instead, the name of the game becomes, how do you become consumed with the milestones for your next round? So part of our diligence process for a seed deal is to go talk with a set of investors who would potentially do the Series A and understand what the milestones are going to be for the Series A. And do the same thing from A to B, by the way, but like, let's focus on seed for a moment. Then your cash allocation decisions to be in service of those milestones. So if we know that the, the number one thing you have to prove for the Series A is commercial traction, and you're telling me about an incremental engineer that you're going to hire when you don't have revenue traction, we're probably going to challenge that cash allocation decision, you know what I mean, versus going and figuring out how you nail the go-to-market. So it becomes more of a, what's the order of operations to prove those milestones and like getting profitable, if that makes sense. Right. No, I think that sequencing is really helpful to for founders to understand, but also to hear you talk through. But yeah, I think that's very helpful. Yeah. Well, this has been such a great conversation. I have um, two questions for you as we kind of wrap up. Uh, one is, what's your top advice for CEOs and executives right now? You've given a lot of general advice, which has been excellent, but um, is there anything in particular? I'm going to repeat something I said earlier. 
do everything in your power to make your customer successful with your product and something would have to go very sideways for you not to succeed. I, I really believe that, particularly in today's environment. There is a lot of reading out there that enterprise sales cycles are slowing, right? It's harder. Your existing customer set is so important and build a culture around that as a number one piece of advice I would give CEO of any stage. Yeah, not just slowing. I saw some data. I think it's from G2 saying that the uh, the average contract length is like six months now. Interesting. I know, which is, right. I mean, I don't think people realize that, you know, but it really, um, yeah. so you're not done after you close a deal, like as soon as you right. sign right back up. So, and then last question, you do have such great breadth of experience, both as an operator and as an investor. What do you think that high performance companies do better than the run of the mill? They're completely aligned. Alignment, I think is critical. We talked about it in terms of the first team thinking, the on the business thinking, but I like to think about it in terms of even your compensation incentives would be aligned. Agree. So, you know, I I, I went through this journey when I was at SailThrough where we transitioned from a founding CEO into a multiple time sort of experienced CEO. Neil Lustig has been a, a great mentor for me. And Neil kind of beat into my head the importance of aligned incentives at every level in the organization, but particularly the executive level, right? And to put a finer point on this, make it really tactical for people. This would mean, you know, if you have an executive bonus plan, let's call it, you have a 30% bonus plan for everyone. Everyone has the exact same metrics, right? So at SailThrough, we had kind of three metrics that we used. One was exit ARR of the business, because that encompassed both new logo growth and retaining the existing business. Number two was a net promoter score target because we were kind of clawing our way out of some debt uh, in that category, right? And number three was a cash-oriented target for a while, and then it became an EBITDA-oriented target as we started to get more focused on rule of 40. You will see behavioral change in an organization when your head of product has their executive bonus <laughs> tied to things like net promoter score, you know what I mean, new logos or existing business things. And so I'm picking on a tactical hack for how to get there, but hands down, great organizations have supreme alignment and it drives performance. I love that. I could not agree more. And that's a, that's actually a very helpful example, I think, for our listeners. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Cassie. This Thanks has been great. This was a blast. Like you and I could talk about this stuff all day long. I know. I love it. We'll have to have you back sometime, but um, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. And uh, wishing everyone a happy holiday. Thanks for joining us here at Good Revenue. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review, follow the show, or share it with a friend. We're a new show, so it really helps other listeners find us. And if you have feedback, comments, or suggestions for episodes or guests, please reach out to us. You can find our information in the show notes. This show was produced with the help of RPS Audio, experts in sound and podcast production.